Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figner, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Jennifer Lackey. Jennifer is the Wayne and Elizabeth Jones Professor of Philosophy at Northwestern University, where she also directs the Northwestern Prison Education Program. Jennifer is an epistemologist whose research spans an uncommonly broad range of issues that includes testimony, assertion, and disagreement. A good deal of her current work is focused on collective and group epistemology. It might be no surprise, then, that her new book is titled The Epistemology of Groups. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. We commonly ascribe beliefs and similar kinds of attitudes to groups. For instance, we say that a foreign government believes that certain members of the press are spies. Sometimes we say that a corporation denies that its product is harmful to the environment. Sometimes it seems that in these cases, we're simply ascribing to the group something like the shared belief of its members. But there are other cases in which it appears that we are referencing an independent subject, um, like the government or the corporation, in a way that indicates that it exists over and above its members and their beliefs. Philosophical puzzles abound. In her book, The Epistemology of Groups, Jennifer Lackey develops a unified account of group belief, justified group belief, group knowledge, and group assertion. Intriguingly, this account serves to ultimately allow us to make sense of group lies and deception. Now, as is usual, there's a lot to talk about, but why don't we begin where we normally do with the author, Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Bob. Thank you, you for today? having me. I'm doing well. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for appearing. Um, you know, uh, we usually start these interviews with a little bit about the author. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, yes. Thanks again for having me. Um, so I've been working broadly in the area of social epistemology since my dissertation. So I was working, um, I was in graduate school in the late 1990s. and um, there was very little social epistemology being done at that time in contrast to, I think, um, now where I think the area has really exploded and there's a great deal of very exciting and innovative work being done. Um, but back in the late nineties, um, just even working on a topic like my dissertation was on testimony was considered rather, rather radical. Um, so, uh, Cody's book had come out in the early 1990s. Um, but in my whole 
time in graduate school, we never really talked about testimony, never um, read Cody's book for a seminar, despite the fact that there was a lot of epistemology going on uh, at Brown at the time. And so um, I became you know, really interested after just reading Cody's book on my own and ended up working on uh, testimony and the epistemology of testimony in my dissertation back then. My first book was published in 2008 on the epistemology of testimony, learning from words. And the way I would describe in many respects the trajectory of my career since then is that I've become increasingly social as an epistemologist uh, since then. So uh, I think that I was interested in social epistemology before it was um, a, a really, really, uh, I think, widely accepted area uh, of, of, of research. Um, but since then, um, I've worked, you know, gone from thinking about how we get knowledge from other people, to thinking about how we disagree with other people, to thinking about how collections or collectives or groups um, can be epistemic agents in their own right. Um, and now I'm doing a lot of work at the intersection of epistemology and criminal law. I'm looking at very specific uh, institutions and taking deep dives within those institutions. Um, so in many respects, I think that my 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 career has evolved um, in the increasingly social direction. Um, I became, I think, interested in philosophical thought more broadly. Uh, I think really, really very young. I grew up, um, my mother uh, raised us as a single parent and she went back to college uh, as an adult. And so my earliest memories were of being like three and four years old and her taking college courses at our community college and her coming out of her classes after my siblings and I waited for her and talking about her classes and telling us about the novel she was reading and, you know, just recounting, like, I just have vivid memories of her telling us about like Jude the Obscure, for instance, and just her telling us about the the novel she was reading and about Freud. And I mean, just in all of her classes, we, um, I think, I think she sparked a really early interest in uh, intellectual thought in all of us. I mean, my brother's an English professor. He's married to an English professor. I'm a philosophy professor. I'm married to a philosophy professor. I think that she did a, a rather remarkable job of getting us thinking about big issues at very early ages. Well, that's fabulous uh, and and very uh, interesting to hear. I mean, Jude the Obscure is a is 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 a um, challenging book emotionally, yeah. even for adults. <laughs> no, I, I agree. It was it was rather heavy for children, but uh, somehow we we uh, I think turned out okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's fabulous. So um, let's uh, talk about the book. Um, you know, the the backstory here I found really intriguing. Um, uh, what I take to be the backstory. So correct me if I'm wrong. So the, the, the book, The Epistemology of Groups, um, begins and ends on a theme and uh, a kind of um, observation that throughout the book, you when you return to it, you, you remind us that you were surprised to have discovered uh, that um, there hasn't really been a lot of theorizing about group lies, <laughs> the ways or the possibility of groups lying, even though... I think you're right in this regard, uh, even though it seems um, sort of in the vernacular outside of the academic discussions of group agents and group beliefs and all the rest, in the vernacular, it is a kind of common site where um, the idea of um, group 
doxastic phenomena uh, seem to appear most obviously. We're very comfortable ascribing lies and other kinds of deceptive uh, intentions and beliefs and attitudes towards groups. Uh, so it's sort of odd, I think you're right, uh, that it hasn't received a lot of attention. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that, 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 that discovery and what you find so intriguing about the idea of group lies and that it hasn't really received much attention until you wrote your book? Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Bob, that my, my interest in the whole project began and ended with group lies. And so um, I think that one thing that really fascinated me about group lies is that it's what convinced me that groups are agents in their own right. So I think that when I came into this project, I really was a, a kind of a neutral party, so to speak. So um at, you know, as is clear, I think from your introduction and also from um, from you know just just any cursory look at the literature, there are very two very broad perspectives in the collective phenomena literature in general, and this applies at every level. Whether you're talking about group belief, group knowledge, group justified belief, assertion, lies, plug in anything you want, and I think this would be I think this would hold as a starting place for any group phenomenon that you wanted to, to, to theorize about, of which there are many that have yet to be explored. I should just note, um, and that's that you can either think of groups um, at one end of the spectrum as being fairly reducible. Um, to the individual members of a group. And so there's not really anything you know, kind of theoretically interesting about groups in their own right. They're really just um, either you can be an eliminativist and think that talk of group phenomena is metaphorical or shorthand, um, or you can think that they're just groups are just entirely reducible to individuals and their states. And at the other end of the spectrum, um, there are, you know, people who think that groups have minds of their own in an extremely robust sense. And I call those theorists inflationary theorists and contrast them with the deflationary theorists at the other end of the spectrum. And I really was neutral when I entered into this debate. You know, I, I really was kind of just reading, you know, a lot of the literature and trying to get a sense of where I fell. And it was the phenomenon of group lies that was sort of like a moment of, co you know, complete and total realization. Like I, I just thought groups lie. This is unequivocal. And it's not just a simple Google search of Facebook and lies or Philip Morris and lies or Pfizer and lies or any sort of, you know, corporation that has been sued for their lies and has had been forced to pay millions and billions or billions of dollars in um, damages. It's not just that. It's that I think when we reflect on our own cases and we think about the relationships that we bear to institutions and to other kinds of collective entities, I think that it is not at all difficult to imagine particular cases in which we would, without hesitation, say that we've been lied to or we would imagine saying that we would be lied to. I mean, if I was hired by Northwestern and was told repeatedly that, um, you know, I would be, you know, that, that certain sorts of research funds, for instance, would be made available to me. And then when I sign on the dotted line, the research funds aren't available. I would, without hesitation, say that Northwestern lied to me. And I think that that's not, that would not be a kind of a metaphorical use of it. But we just simply can't make sense out of lies without making sense out of what it is for a group to hold a belief. And so if groups lie in a robust, substantive sense, then I became convinced very early on that that means that groups must believe in a right. robust, non-metaphorical sense. And Perfect. so- 
Oh, I'm sorry. Please, go ahead. Do no, no. I, please continue. I, I have a follow up, but I, I want to. I want you to finish the thought. And so I really had this thought very early on, like groups lie premise that I'm just absolutely committed to. Groups, you know, group lies can't be understood without groups having genuine, robust beliefs. And so groups have to have genuine beliefs. And so right out of the gate, I became, you know, kind of convinced through this very simple argument that um, that group epistemology um, is an area that needs exploring in its own right. And then was shocked to discover that there wasn't a single article written on what group lies are. Despite the fact that I think any one of us would say that we probably have been lied to more by groups than by individuals. I mean, I would imagine that most of us don't surround ourselves by individuals, friends, family members, colleagues who are repeatedly lying to us. But I think that we would, without hesitation, think that corporations, pharmaceutical companies, advertising companies were lied to on a daily basis by them. And so um, it's really rather shocking that from a philosophical perspective, despite the fact that there is a fairly robust body of literature on lying and lies, that there was, I think, this glaring um, omission in the in the literature on a topic that I think impacts all of us pretty you know pretty regularly. Great. So let me ask sort of one just quick follow up, um, uh, which again is it, it m- might be more sort of just autobiographical than than anything else. Um, to what extent do you think that the the sort of unequivocal you know fact that groups lie, not only can lie, but in fact, do. Um, to what extent um, is, is your um, uh, interest in that, your, your, uh, uh, your, 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 your desire to get at uh, the philosophical implications of that unequivocal fact, um, how is it, is it driven or to what extent is it uh, motivated by an interest in group responsibility in the moral sense for their, for their lies? Oh, I think completely driven. I mean, honestly, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, at the end of the day, what I wanted to build was a framework for holding groups accountable for their actions. Um, I think that I am powerfully aware of how um, institutions and you know, collective entities more broadly can exert their power on on, 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 on people in our society, particularly vulnerable members of our society. I've witnessed it firsthand repeatedly that the power of an institution when it is up against an individual is oftentimes, um, you know, I mean, something that just can't, can't be taken on. And I mean, we see this with the criminal legal system. I think that we see this with our own, the own institutions that we interact with, you know, kind of healthcare and, you know, even our, you know, sometimes our employers. And, um, I think that I started with this idea that we've been lied to by our government. We have been lied to by our institutions. We've been lied to. I mean, think about, you know, um, I mean, I was I was seeing this make its rounds after the Chauvin verdict was handed down. Um, you know, the initial report by the Minneapolis Police Department about what occurred, right? And and just this 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 chill that you feel about being lied to, right? It's a just it's like a bald faced lie, right? I mean, in many respects. I mean, now it's a bald faced lie. Back then, before we had the video, right? It was just a pernicious lie, right? And just seeing that and this this unequivocal evaluation, right? You lied to us. 
And you need to be held accountable for this as an institution, right? And I think in many respects, the the narrative that we have been been fed about the Chauvin verdict, right? Even during the trial, that Chauvin was a bad apple, that he went against police policies, right? That by virtue of him having his knee on 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 George Floyd's neck for longer than you know the six minutes after he stopped, you know, moving was 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 not you uh, was not you know. Um, policy. We did was not following policy. Um, really, that is exactly the kind of case that motivates my project, right? Because you see two different responses in, in you know, kind of in the public at large, but I, I also see this oftentimes in, in legal cases, right? You either go the bad apple route and you say this was just some individuals, or you say it was a completely, you know, kind of corporate level um you know, action, and we're not going to reveal the names of any particular individuals, right? And so you see these two different responses. And I wanted to provide a framework where we weren't left with only those two options, the bad apple or no individuals, just corporate levels. So just slap our hands with a fine and we're done. You know, I wanted to look at a framework that had the resources from an epistemic point of view, because I don't think that we can really hold collective entities properly responsible without an epistemological framework grounding it. I wanted to provide a framework that that allowed us to say individuals and collectives as something over and above the individuals can shoulder responsibility for collective action. Fabulous. Fabulous. So um, that's great. Uh, and that motivation, <laughs> uh, you know, which, you know, that investment uh, uh, is, is really um, clear in the book, I should say. Um, so, um, the uh, the analyses of the, the the central chapters of the book, in fact, all the chapters of the book, sort of follow a um, a, a common pattern. Um, you're, as you just put it, even you're trying to clear some space for a view that um, sits um, properly in between the sort of more eliminativist and the more inflationary uh, sort of accounts of 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 group agents in some very broad sense of, uh, of agent. Um, but you're sort of in each chapter, you're trying to sort of, um, clear a, a middle path between those two, um, sort of more, um, uh, extreme views, um, where you want to say, um, you know, the group phenomena, the relevant group phenomena is not merely just the aggregation or the, the, the summation of the individual phenomena of the men that apply to the members of the group, but nor is it the case that, um, the group phenomena are, um, you know, sort of full Pettit style minds of their own and not in any way, um, well, we should just say are just independent of anything that is any facts about the members. Um, so can you walk us through, um, the accounts? Let's just start where you start with group belief uh, in a way that helps us to get a feel for these two standing options. And then the way that you, you know, make room for a view that ultimately says, it, you know, it's not reductivist, so it's not just the summation view, but it does say that, yeah, well, the group phenomena are not reducible to the individual phenomena, but they're also not independent and free-floating from the individual phenomena. Can you spell that yeah. out? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. So, um, so starting with group belief, but like I said, this really, you see this, um, the same argumentative uh, structure and the same sort of theoretical options across the board with group phenomena. But focusing on group belief, on the one hand, you have the deflationary views 
which say that there really isn't anything interesting by itself, you know, when it comes to group belief, it really is just the summation or the reduction of a group belief to individual members. So a group's believing that smoking is safe just means that certain members of the group believe that smoking is safe. Now, it's typically, I mean, there are some theorists out there who use very strong language, like all or most, but I think the most plausible to be super charitable to all of the parties involved, I think the most um, plausible version of the of this sort of really radically deflationary view is where you use something like operative members. So like members with the relevant decision-making authority. So if operative members believe that P, then the group believes that P. So with Philip Morris, it might be the board of directors or um, and it also depends on the nature of the belief. So um, obviously, with respect to so- certain beliefs, like the grounds of the, you know, kind of the central plant, you know, for Philip Morris, then it might be the groundskeepers who are the operative members. So it really matters with respect to the belief who the operative members are. But the core idea is group belief really is just shorthand for talking about the members of the beliefs of individual members. And on the other end of the spectrum, which has become the dominant view in recent um, in the recent literature, which again, I was rather surprised to encounter when I first started taking a really deep dive into this literature. Um, Really, the literature has swung to the radically inflationary side. And it's really motivated by these cases that we might call divergence cases. And divergence cases purport to show that a group can have, can instantiate some sort of property or have some sort of state that no individual member instantiates or has. And so given that, the conclusion that seems to natural, naturally follow is, well, therefore, groups can have that state Um, when no individual member does, and therefore we need to be inflationary theorists. We need to say that groups, you know, kind of having that state is completely independent of individual members having that state. So let's start with group belief. A classic example of this is a jury. So um, some some theorists have have said, like, look, a group can believe that um, a defendant is guilty, even though no individual member of that group believes that the defendant is guilty. or there are like various different kinds of ways that this might work. I mean, um, like a parent, you know, two parents might be having a discussion about the age at which they want to let their child stay out past midnight. One parent might say 18, one parent might say 16, they might compromise and say 17. So we might say that the collective entity made up by those parents believes that the child should not come home past midnight until they're 17, whereas no individual member, that is neither parent, actually believes this. So um, this has led a lot of theorists to embrace what's called the joint acceptance theory. And I want to say joint acceptance theories are not the only inflationary theorists, but they're in a way, I think, really representative of what an inflationary theorist would look like. I also look at inflationary theorists in the book that come out of the judgment aggregation literature. And I'm happy to talk more about that, but I'm going to bracket that for now. Um, So for joint acceptance theorists, what they argue is that um, collective belief is constituted by joint acceptance. And so um, what that means is typically something like the operative members of the group jointly accept that P. And what that means is that they are all willing to let that P stand as the belief of the group. So imagine, for instance, like a department meeting, um, you all can't agree on the best candidate for, you know, kind of to make a job offer to, 
through compromise, you all land on candidate A, um, but no one actually was supporting candidate A in the first place. Some were supporting C and some were supporting B. Well, you're still as a group going to let that stand as the as the as the department's belief. You're going to um, argue that to the administration. You're going to put that forward to the dean. Um, you know, when you're trying to recruit, you're all going to stand by that, even though no individual member personally believes this. And so this has led a lot of theorists to say that um, group belief uh, it float, can float entirely freely from individual belief. Um, I, I try to make an intervention. I think that there are problems with the inflationary theory, uh, a, a, a multitude of problems about with the inflationary approach. But what I try to do is raise in this book what I think is a, is a novel argument against uh, the inflationary approach. But also, more importantly to me than it being novel, is that I was trying to motivate an argument that even the inflationary theorist, on his or her own terms, so to speak, would be uncomfortable with. And that is that um, I think that inflationary theorists cannot accommodate group lies. So you can see how group lies play a very kind of central role throughout my theorizing. So the idea goes, um, you know, on your view, joint acceptance is both necessary and sufficient for group belief. So imagine Philip Morris comes along and says, we're all the operative members, we're the board members of Philip Morris, we're going to get together and we're going to jointly accept that smoking is safe for the purposes of our corporation. Um, then they go ahead and they, you know, kind of publicize that smoking is safe and they, you know, put it in all of their materials. Uh, it, it seems pretty clear that this can be motivated by totally self-serving reasons, right? It can be motivated by economic, you know, kind of reasons, you know, avoiding lawsuits. Um, there's a lot of reasons that can motivate um, group members to jointly accept a given proposition. And um, I think that we would all be, um, you know, very inclined to say that, like, just thinking about the real Philip Morris, under those circumstances in which they jointly accepted that, that, that would clearly be a lie. And yet on the joint acceptance theory, it ends up being not only not a lie, but a straightforward assertion of a group's belief. And, um, and I think that this is just, this is just, I think, I think it's just a reductio in many respects, right? Like you, you just, you have to jettison the view because one of the, I think, kind of desiderata of an adequate account of group belief is that it be able to accommodate group lies and the joint acceptance there simply cannot do that. Right, right. So can you now sketch just, you know, the alternative? So we're, we're not going to be the summative or uh, the aggregative, aggregative sort of deflationary uh, view. The uh, inflationary view is uh, implausible for that. Uh, I thought totally, I should say, for what it's worth, utterly convincing <laughs> uh, argument about uh, you know the an adequacy condition for one of, for an account has to be that it can it can call a lie a lie at the group level. Um, so how does the uh, how does your 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 alternative view look for of group belief? What does it look like? Yeah, so um, I I tend to count count call my views throughout the book. Um, group agent or group epistemic agent account. So I really want to center the notion of epistemic agents being agents in their own right, in a robust and substantive way. 
So one of the problems that I raise for going like a strictly aggregative or deflationary way about group belief is that once you bring, and this is going to be a theme that you're going to see throughout the book, once you bring to bear um, a collection of individuals, right, individual members with different states, all of those belief states are going to have their own bases. So I'm going to believe that P for a particular reason. Someone else might believe that P for another reason. Someone else might believe that P for still another reason. And so we all bring to bear when we come to a, when, you know, kind of when there are members of a group, we all have different bases for our beliefs, or we all could, let, let me be more precise, have different bases for our beliefs. And so those bases are also relevant to our assessment of groups as epistemic agents, because why we believe things can directly bear on our rationality, right? Why I believe something can, can have a direct impact on what counts as counter evidence to a, f- a belief that I have or what, you know, kind of what action that belief rationalizes. And so one of the things that I show, uh, show, um, show is that a purely aggregative model fails to um, properly account for the kind of incoherence that radically conflicting bases for a belief can bring to an epistemic framework. And so what my account tries to do is to say group belief needs to be anchored by individual beliefs. So I simply don't think that there is an account and it's a strong thesis, which I, you know, after this many years in philosophy, I'm powerfully aware of counterexamples, right? So I really usually hedge my claims, but I'm really confident that there is no really robustly inflationary theory of group belief that can adequately account for group lies. Okay. Um, And so I think that group belief needs to be anchored by individual beliefs, but individual beliefs, when they constitute individuals and their states, when they constitute a group, also bring to bear all of the connections and the relations between those states and their bases. And that those connections and those relations to me are what bring epistemic agency to the table, so to speak. So we, we assess group beliefs both by virtue of their individual sort of anchoredness, right? That, that they have to be anchored by these individual beliefs, but when they are, you know, kind of beliefs that are part of a collective, the interconnections between them um, are relevant to our, our epistemic assessments. And it's in virtue of those connections that groups are epistemic agents. That's a mouthful, but it seems to me <laughs> a very promising, uh, promising account. Now, um, so can you? Here's a quick segue, right? Because now it looks as if, given what you just said about the the group agency view, um, now I think it's almost predictable what justified group belief would look like, right? Yeah. So, um, so I think really interestingly, um, you know, right around the time that I was working on this, um, Alvin Goldman published, I think, uh, a really substantive piece on 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 group belief, unjustified group belief, and um, in contrast to the dominant literature on group belief, which had really been largely inflationary, in fact, very robustly inflationary, um, Goldman comes out of the gate 
with what I think is a very intuitive version of a deflationary account of justified group belief. And the deflationary approach really starts with this basic intuitive idea that if you increase individual level justifiedness, you thereby increase group level justifiedness when those individuals are members of the group. So, I mean, just think about like, you know, any standard group, right? So Philip Morris, let's take what they genuinely do believe that smoking is not safe, right? To the extent that the individual members believe that smoking is not safe, and they get additional evidence, oh, smoking is even less safe than we thought. Oops, even more unsafe. As their justification goes up, because they get additional evidence, let's say, the group's level of justification also goes up. And this is a really intuitive idea, right? And, and, and Goldman develops this very nicely through this idea of transmission, that group level justifiedness is transmitted through individual level justifiedness. So you just think of group level um, justification supervening on individual level justification, increase the level of justification of those individual members, and it just have arrows visually pointing up, right? It's just being transmitted up to the group. And one thing that happens is once you recognize that people believe things for different reasons and people justifiably believe things for different reasons, it's a very simple intuitive thought. I think it massively complicates this very simple picture. And so what I do is I develop in sometimes painstaking detail um, the idea that this simple picture has to be rejected. And it has to be rejected because once you bring a collective to the table um, of individuals and they can and often do believe things for different reasons, they can believe things for reasons that directly conflict. And so that direct conflict can introduce counter evidence into the overall evidential framework for the group that can function as a defeater. So the simple picture that the more you increase justifiedness at the individual level, there's this direct arrow is false. In other words, um, you can have a group whose level of justifiedness is significantly lower. In fact, I even think defeated, altogether defeated, even though the level of individual justifiedness is extraordinarily high. We can even imagine for every member of the group. Yeah. And that, um, by the way, I just want to say th- that argument, um, again, again, another argument, I just totally convinced me. <laughs> it's like, yeah, one of the implications of the Goldman view is that, you know, g- given the members, like the group can become more justified, even when it's becoming more epistemically irrational. That's right. That's <laughs> and that right. just exactly. seems, that's a reductio, right? <laughs> yeah. And it seems as though, I mean, like when we think about it, I think, I mean, the, the Goldman picture is very intuitive, right? So, I mean, I always start off by really motivating that. It just seems like when you think about like just some simple pictures, it's extremely intuitive. But then once you start thinking about all of the different reasons we believe things, it becomes very intuitive that it's a problem, right? Because what happens is, I mean, more evidence doesn't always mean more justified, right? I mean, this is so obvious, right? I mean, I believe that the 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 animal outside of my lawn right now is a coyote, right? 
And then I get further evidence, so more evidence that bears on my belief that there's a coyote out there that, you know, my next door neighbor just adopted, you know, well, let's say a fox. I think that this is a better example. I believe it's a fox. And I just get further evidence that my next door neighbor just adopted a Shiba Inu that looks very much like a fox, right? Well, that's more evidence. But now my belief that it's a fox has gone down. This is like very, very simple. This is very intuitive. Um, There's nothing like kind of like, you know, really technically uh, difficult about grasping this. And so once we see that in our own individual case, that more evidence doesn't always equal more justified. In fact, more evidence can equal not justified at all, because more evidence can be a defeater that has completely defeated my justification for my target belief. Once we see that and we multiply the number of epistemic frameworks that we're talking about to however many individual members are part of that group, it should be absolutely obvious. I don't need to go through the math to to kind of make it clear that the number of scenarios in which the level of justification can go down or be altogether defeated is just almost too many to envision. Yeah. Yeah. Seems right. <laughs> so what is it on your view then? What, 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 what's the right account or what's your account of justified group belief then? So um, I should mention like super briefly that on the other end of the justification spectrum is also an inflationary view. So there are some inflationary theorists on that view. And they um, maybe somewhat surprisingly also endorse a version of a joint acceptance account. And so what they think is that the reasons that are available to a group that ground their justification are the reasons that are jointly accepted. And they build an epistemology by saying like, oh, yeah, then, then, you know, kind of, um, I mean, so, so the first question we need to ask is, when are reasons or evidence available to a group? And the answer to that question given by inflationary theorists is when they are jointly accepted. The problem with this approach is what I call the illegitimate manipulation of evidence objection. And what that is, is that like, if the only evidence or reasons available to to a group are the evidence or reasons that they jointly accept, just jointly accept evidence that you want to fabricate and fail (laughs) to jointly accept evidence that you want to avoid, right? Right. And then what happens is that evidence is just magically not available to the group. It's only available to the individuals. I think, again, this is a a very serious problem for any inflationary theorist. And I think that it should lead to the rejection of an inflationary account of justified group belief. So um, as with belief, I develop what I call is a group epistemic agent account. So on my view, groups are understood as epistemic agents in their own right. And by this, I mean that they have evidential and normative constraints that arise and apply at only the group level. And that is very important because the normative and evidential constraints that are governing the relations between the reasons for, right, the bases we might call, the bases for the individual level's belief arise only at the collective level. And so in that sense, I think that they are are genuinely robust group epistemic agents. Um, So I think that we need to have a sensitivity to the relations among the evidence possessed by group members and the epistemic obligations that arise through membership in that group. Um, And that's, I mean, I can say a few words about that, but I'll just bracket that for now. Um, Mm -hmm. And so at the same time, however, I think that group justifiedness is still largely a matter of member justifiedness, meaning um, I think that 
you can't have group justifiedness that floats entirely freely from whether there are any ju- ju- group group members who have right. justified beliefs. And so what I argue is that the result the result is a view that neither inflates nor deflates group epistemology, um, but instead recognizes that group justified belief is constrained by individual members' justified beliefs, but it's not ultimately reducible to it. Right, right, right. Great, great. Um, and again, that's a nice segue into the group knowledge chapter, right? So now it looks like we, yeah, one of the nice um, features of the book, folks, is how systematic this all is is laid out. So this is incredibly stepwise in the following sense. So now we've got this um, group epistemic agent account of justified group belief. Now, Jennifer, what does it mean for a group to have knowledge? So my section in group knowledge is, I'd say, a little bit more of a defensive approach. So what I do in the group knowledge chapter, because I think that once you have an account of group justified belief, you're pretty close to an account of knowledge. I'm, I mean, I think I, I don't care if you call it warrant. I don't care what you what exactly you call it, but I think that justification is that critical component to knowledge that really tells much of the epistemological story. So what I want to do in group knowledge in the group knowledge chapter is to look at some really influential accounts of what I call purported group knowledge that are robustly inflationary and that pose a direct challenge to the views that I developed in the first two chapters of the book. And one is, um, it's really, really nicely developed and defended um, in a lot of Alexander Byrd's work, but it really comes out of a lot of the literature on in the philosophy of science. And that's this idea of social knowledge or social knowing. And so um, we've probably heard, you know, we've probably, many people I'm sure have heard examples of this, but like a paradigmatic example for Byrd of what he calls social knowing is um, like, the, in a way, the so-called knowledge possessed by the scientific community. And so he's interested in cases where no single individual knows a given proposition, but the information plays a particular functional role in the community. Um, a lot of this comes out of the kind of extended cognition or extend, you know, kind of extended mind literature. So another kind of widely used example is um, ship navigation before GPS devices. And so the idea might be that the ship as, as, as a sort of like, quote, quote, unquote, an agent by itself is kind of nav- being, you know, kind of navigated, but no individual member is doing the navigation. Everyone is doing a part that is collectively leading to the navigation of the ship. Um, and the second doctrine, which is, 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 has some striking similarities, is, is the collective knowledge doctrine, which occupies an important role in U.S. law. And so this doctrine holds that knowledge may be imputed to a group, um, you know, such as, for instance, like one of the cases I discuss is to like a, a, um, like a police unit by aggregating bits of information that's had by its individual members. And so um, even if there is no, so, so let me just discuss one interesting case, I think, of the collective knowledge doctrine that will make this really vivid. There was a case um, where um, this, this police unit, they, you know, kind of a team of police officers were working together. And um, one police officer observed a hand-to-hand exchange of what he thought was drugs. The suspect took off running. And another police officer that was working 
in tandem with this uh, with this first police officer, saw the suspect running, but did not see the hand to hand exchange and did not talk to that first police officer. Stopped the suspect and um, and um, searched him, even though he should have searched him only if he had observed the hand to hand exchange, and um, found drugs. And um, when this was uh, presented, um, the courts found that that individual bits of knowledge could be um, attributed to the police unit as a whole, working it as a whole. So, so even though there was no communication between the two, it was regarded as legitimate, right? Um, and so. Um, one of the, um, you know, if these, this account of social knowing and collective knowing, um, are, are true, then you don't need the anchoring of the individual beliefs or justified beliefs that my account has. Right. Um, but what I do is show, and I think you can actually see, even in the case I just described, um, I argue that both social knowledge and collective knowledge sever a crucial connection that we need to have between knowledge and the rationalization of actions, you know, the rationalizing of actions. And I think it opens the door to serious abuses, not only epistemically, but I think as we saw in the case I just described, but morally and legally as well. So what I want to argue is that bits of information that are what I call merely accessible to group members. So I think that these views just completely conflate the distinction that is important between information that is available to people or information that should have been accessed or information that should be known with information that is known. And um, I can, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, people like Bird, the, uh, the social knowing, he wants to argue that information that is in a published article that is in a library that nobody like who is alive has accessed is scientific knowledge because it's available. And, you know, the collective knowledge doctrine in U.S. law wants to say that because this information was accessible to the to the police officers in this unit, that it was therefore known by the police unit. And I think this just conflates information being available or accessible with information actually being accessed <laughs> or, you know, known, and that this leads to serious problems about the very important connection between knowledge and belief and action. Um, so right. I reject both of those accounts. <laughs> That's right. So what what does it take then on your account for a group to have knowledge? Um, so what it takes is, I think, for a group to have belief in, in, in the sense that I've developed in the earlier account and to have justified belief. So justification is largely transferred on my account. So the part that I agree with on Goldman is that there is a transference, right? There is justification that... Um, transfers from individuals to the collective. And in many respects, we can think of that as being some of the foundational bases for the justification, right? What justifies a collective? Well, a lot of individual members have justified beliefs. But then what happens at the collective level can either enhance that sort of um, basis of, of individual justifiedness or defeat it. So for instance, collective deliberation can add an additional layer of justifiedness to those individual bases, right? And enhance the overall collective justifiedness or um, um, 
conflicts or um, incoherence among the bases can de- can lower or defeat the level of justifiedness. So, um, on my view, it requires that there be this this grounding of individual bases, and then satisfaction of normative level constraints that arise only at the collective level. Um, in in addition, it requires that there not be incoherence among the bases of the beliefs. And am I right also to think that there's um, something like the the the, the uh, proviso about the operative members of the group, right? It doesn't mean that every group member. That's exactly right. right. Yes, so that's exactly some, right. Some set of the of the group has to meet these conditions in order for the group to have knowledge, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, and operative members are going to be determined by the content of the relevant belief in question. Right. Right. Very good. Very good. So, um. Jennifer, you've been really um, uh, generous with your time, and uh, we're 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 I want to make sure that we get uh, to talk about uh, the, the 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 lingering two issues, which um, ultimately, with our conception or with your conception of group knowledge, we're now in a position to talk about what it means for groups to assert contents or to assert things. Um, uh, which I take it then is just um, the the final necessary step in order you to tie the package together with an account of group lies. So, sort of compressing these two things together, can you talk to us a little bit about your 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 view about group assertion, and then ultimately, um, uh, you know, let the cat out of the bag and let us know <laughs> what group lies are. Yeah, absolutely. So somewhat shockingly, um, and I think that it might be like a prima facie concern for a reader, is that I'm, I have like a, a fairly um, significant deflationary component to my accounts of group belief, group justified belief, group knowledge, in that I think that these individual states need to anchor um, these phenomena. And I'm a full-blown inflationary theorist, we might say, when it comes to group assertion and group lies. And just prima facie, you might say like, well, wait a minute, well, this, this just, how does this fit together? And I think that there is a coherent story to be told. And so um, I'm going to start off and I'll tell that story in a few minutes, but let me give you my account first. So um, group assertion, um, I think, has, as I, as I noted at the beginning, not only is, was there no account of group lies, but there was virtually nothing on what it is for a group to assert something. And so um, I think that there are two, broadly speaking, two different ways that groups can assert a proposition. And one is um, through what we might call some sort of coordinated group activity. I think this is actually quite rare. Um, I mean, there are, you know, obviously cases where like a collection of individuals is working on like a Google Doc, and it's a lot of individual assertions that make up um a, a group document, right? So I add a sentence, you add a sentence, I might change your sentence, I might add a word. And there's sort of like a collective working on a document like that. There also might be like a group of individuals who literally um, help set spell, help me on a desert island, right? Literally as a collective, making this sort of collective assertion. But the bulk of group assertions that we encounter are actually done through what I would call an authorized spokesperson or spokespersons. And what that means is that typically when group assertions are made, they are made by an, uh, some subset, smaller subset of the group who has the authority to speak on behalf of the group. And so, um, you know, we think about like, you know, the White House spokesperson, right? You kind know, of speaking on behalf of the Biden administration. Um, 
And so this is a very, very common way. Like a department doesn't literally all get up and say in unison to the dean, we want to hire candidate A, right? I mean, the chair goes and says the philosophy department wants to hire candidate A, and the chair is the department's authorized spokesperson in this case. Um, So what I look at is um, how to understand group assertion, primarily through this mechanism of a authorized spokesperson. And so what I look at is the notion of proxy agency, where um, group action is literally constituted by the action of another individual, like a spokesperson or, you know, spokespersons. And so um, what I argue is that group assertion um, can take place when a group, uh, an authorized spokesperson, a person who has the authority to speak on behalf of a group asserts within the context of that authority. So in virtue of having that authority, um, you know, assert something. And this spokesperson oftentimes is not a member of the group. Um, so for instance, we might hire a, an attorney to speak on behalf of, 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 um, of a corporation. I mean, it would be ridiculous to say that an outside attorney is a member of Northwestern because Northwestern hired the attorney to speak on behalf of the group. It does not on Northwestern's payroll. It doesn't get, you know, kind of any benefits from Northwestern. It is definitely not a member of Northwestern, but still is an authorized spokesperson. And Northwestern is asserting, I want to say, by virtue of that spokesperson asserting. Now, you might say, oh, well, this is just sort of like um, a small little point that like the group member. So, so in other words, if the group member doesn't need to be a member of, I mean, if the spokesperson doesn't need to be a member of the group, then it looks like group assertion simply cannot be reducible to um, the, to the, to, to individual members because the assertion from the individual is not a group member. But you might say, well, look, I mean, it still is kind of broadly reducible, right? Um, because it's still reducible to an individual assertion, right? It's just reducible to an individual assertion made by a non-group member. So that's not all that inflationary after all. That's not all that interesting, right? You're just kind of pointing out the obvious that the individual member need not be a group member. Um, But I actually think that this is mistaken because I don't think that what the individual is doing is offering an assertion in his or her own right. And the reason why I think this is really important is that look at all that has been written about what assertion is. Look at all of the norms that people think are relevant for assertion. None of those apply to what a spokesperson is doing. None of them. Right. And that is because like, so let's think about like, typically people think that assertions ought to follow something like a norm, uh, like an epistemic norm, assert only if you know that P or assert only if you sincerely believe that P or something like this. Right. There's all sorts of norms like this. None of those apply at the level of the spokesperson because the spokesperson should not be asserting only what she or he believes or only what she or he knows, but what the but what the view that best represents the group's belief is. And so once we see that the norms governing assertion are operative at only the collective level, we can see that a robustly inflationary view is, is, is called for here. And I just, I, I, 
try to kind of um, assuage any concerns that people have about like, wait, why are you so robustly inflationary over here when you're not as robustly inflationary when it comes to other phenomena? And what I say is when we can have a proxy agent, when we can give another an individual or sub, you know, group the authority to do something on our behalf in a way that constitutes our actions, then we can be inflationary theorists. So we can have um, proxy agents when it comes to assertion. We can have proxy agents when it comes to lying. We can have proxy agents when it comes to action, but we can't have proxy agents when it comes to believing. And so because of that, um, I think that my views are robustly inflationary when we can have proxy agents. Once we have this inflationary account of group assertion, it's a very, very, very small step to group lies. I think the heart of my account of group lying is this note, this inflationary account of group assertion. And then I think that we just plug in, I've done other work on lying. I think we just plug in the remaining conditions. So a group lies when a group asserts that P, but the group believes, doesn't believe that P or believes that not P. So then you just plug in my account of group belief and it has the intention to be deceptive. And I think that we should, we would just plug in, um, uh, you know, kind of our, our, our preferred account of what it is for a group to have an intention. Um, there's been a, like actually a fair bit of, of literature on that. So I don't take that up in this book because I'm prim- offering primarily an epistemological framework. Um, so I think the heart of my account of group lies is this robustly inflationary account of group assertion. Great. Can, can you say one? We're, we're running. We're, yeah, we're running up against the clock. But can you? There's a really I thought very neat and interesting distinction that you I think rightly see needs to be drawn between the intention to be deceptive <laughs> and the intention to deceive. Is that the distinction? That's correct. And so um, say say what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the work on lying these days has jettisoned the very traditional account of lying that we that I think we get all the way back in Augustine. And that's that lying is asserting what you yourself do not believe with the intention to deceive. That was the canonical, that was the the very standard account of, of, of lying at the individual level. And then lots of people rejected that. And let's just take like a super simple example, a bald-faced lie. Someone argued, there's been a lot of people who have argued, I, a bald-faced lie is a lie. I assert it. Um, I assert what I don't believe. But I have no intention to deceive you because it's bald-faced and I know that I'm not going to get you to believe that P. So with the intention to deceive you is typically understood as the intention to get you to believe that P. But if it's bald-faced, you and I both know (laughs) that you're not going to come to believe that P. So hence, we have to jettison the um, condition on lying that requires the intention to deceive. I've ar- I argue that there is a much broader intention operative here, and that's the intention to be deceptive. And the intention to be deceptive in- includes the intention to deceive, but it's a much broader, um, broader notion. And it includes the intention to withhold information or to conceal information. 
And so um, I think in a lot of the classic counterexamples against the intention to deceive, there is a broader intention to be deceptive in a, in a, in a, in a, in a more general way, to either um, to, you know kind of withhold my own testimony, to withhold my own confession, to withhold my own um, kind of um, just flat out assertion that something is the case, right? And so um, I think that once we draw this distinction between the intention to deceive and the intention to be deceptive, we can retain the spirit of the traditional view of lying. Well, Jennifer, that's um, fantastic. Um, Thank you so much uh, for joining me uh, today on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really a pleasure. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Um, And congratulations on the book, which is really fabulous. Um, And thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us today for our discussion. I will remind you, I've been talking to Jennifer Lackey. Uh, Jennifer has a new book that's just been published with Oxford University Press. Its title is The Epistemology of Groups. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.